Welcome to the Matters of Movement podcast. I'm your host, Christina Whalen Chabot. Join me in exploring all the things that impact movement and how we can all strive to move better to feel better as I interview movement experts, researchers, and real people who have made big and inspiring changes in their lives by turning to movement and wellness. Today, I am so excited to welcome Melinda Hakuarachi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So glad to have you here. I'm going to read your bio and let the bio speak for itself. Melinda is a PhD candidate studying biomechanics at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto. Her research primarily focuses on studying vertical jumps in athletic populations to better understand the movement mechanics as they relate to performance and support practitioners in their training design and program implementation praxis. While an undergraduate student of U of T, Melinda competed for the women's varsity field hockey team and was twice named the Ontario University Associ- Association's Player of the Year, and in 2006 was presented with the Canadian Inter-University Sport Gail Wilson Award as the country's best all-around field hockey athlete. She has served as an assistant coach with the varsity field hockey team at U of T since 2012, and Melinda was also a member of the Canadian national indoor team competing at the 2007 and 2015 Indoor World Cups. Most recently, Melinda received a Sports Information Research Center Researcher Practitioner Match Grant in which she plans to conduct biomechanics research on female field hockey athletes in the high performance development pathway. She's excited about this opportunity as it bridges her research interests with her passion for her sport. Amazing, this is so exciting. So Melinda and I go way back. We actually were in university together a long, long time ago, um, which is uh, how I decided that I, I needed to have her on the podcast. I saw that she was doing her PhD and doing all this amazing work. So I invited her on here today to share all the amazing stuff that she's doing. So let's dive in. I would love to know, uh, for those of you who are new to the movement world or would like to know more, Melinda, can you share with us what biomechanics is? Um, So first, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited uh, about this opportunity to share my research and to share um, what we do and and what it means. So um, when we think about biomechanics, I sort of sometimes break it down to just using and understanding physics to explain how the body moves. And so when we're looking at things from a biomechanical lens, we're really trying to use um, the principles of mechanics to solve um, problems related to the structure, the function, um, and motion of the body. So as a, as a biomechanist, that we're really thinking about how the body moves from, you know, thinking, thinking of yourself as a movement analyst. So we're looking at how the body moves, um, what's the structure and function, and you know, using that information to explain how somebody is moving and how it relates to performance or injury, et cetera. So um, our, our lab at U of T does a lot of work um, when it comes to performance outcomes, but what we're really trying to get a handle on is how you're moving. Um, and so we use biomechanical principles to evaluate performance and to understand our movement processes. Um, so the big thing here is that we're, it's almost taking yeah, that physics approach to understanding how the body moves, mm-hmm. next performance. 
That's really interesting. I loved my biomechanics course when I was in school and uh, I loved it. It was so great. So what are you specifically researching for your graduate work? Um, So my work looks, uh, I I take vertical jump assessment. So that's a tool that we can use to assess athletic performance and I'm breaking it down. Um, So I, I critically look at vertical jumps from the ground up. So how we collect that data, um, how we process that data, how we um, take that information and apply it to performance. So interpreting that changes to the different variables that we can derive. So if you have athletes jumping on a force platform, we can look at the ground reaction force and we can derive the, we can take the variables that we can derive from it and use that to help understand athletic performance. So my first study is we had athletes jumping on force plates and we gave them different cues and instructions to see how that influenced how they were jumping. And mm-hmm. what I'm currently working on is sort of breaking down the signal processing. So taking the data that we collect, making sure we have a good handle on that information, and then uh, understanding how potentially there are differences between individuals when it comes to how we interpret that information. And what we're trying to understand is, so we can sometimes think about the vertical jump as this, you know, how high can you jump? And a lot of people will ask me, if you have, are you looking at sports that are just jumping sports? And I said, no, not necessarily. You can use the vertical jump in as assessment tool. So we can look at that and use that to characterize athletic performance um, and use that to, you know, use that information to, and apply it to training and injury programs. But what we're trying to say is that you can take this assessment tool and if we break it down and we're actually implementing it in a objective way, we can use that information to uh, take and apply to different training programs. So for the athletes that joined me in my first study, we're from all different varsity sports and we're looking at you know how they're moving, influences their movement and how we can take that information and apply it to different, you know, training programs and injury prevention uh, programs as well. So interesting. So if we were to talk about force plates, for those who don't know what a force plate is, yeah. what is what is that? Um, you can almost think of it as a very expensive scale. Okay. So when you stand on it, it gives you, uh, it basically tells you um, your weight. But when we're talking about physics, it's telling us how, what, what's happening in terms of how many Newtons you, you weigh. So, so, <laughs> so what we're looking at is when you apply, when you're standing on a force plate, you have a ground reaction force. It's the equal and opposite. So when you're, it's, we're looking at the, the, the reaction force, so to speak, um, that information. So when you're moving on the, on the force plate, um, we can track that information uh, over time. Uh, we can look at the ground reaction force, your reaction force to the force you're applying to the earth, what the earth is applying back to you. And it tells, it tells you, to, it's, it's, we're looking at the kinetics. We're looking at the forces that your body is applying. Mm-hmm. You break that down. Um, we can look at different components of your movement. So in a vertical jump, for instance, we can look at when you're generating your movement about to take off. Or so you're, and then you're in the air. So there's not going to be a ground reaction force, of course, when you're, when you're in the air. And there's also, for some times, you're also looking at the landing mechanics. So when you hit the force plate and you land, how are you attenuating those forces? Are you bending your knees? Are you absorbing the impact? Um, my research specifically is looking at the takeoff. So I'm looking at how an athlete generates their force to get off the, uh, the ground as high as they can, um, what kind of, are they, are they applying a lot of force for a slow amount of time or are they applying a high amount of force over a short period of time? And those things do matter in an athletic context because uh, if you're able to jump up 
high, that's one thing, but if you, if you can move really quickly and get there higher, but more quickly, so how, you know, the, what we call rate of force development, um, that is important in an athletic performance context, because not only can you move forcefully, but you can do so under short durations of time. And if you think about uh, cutting quickly, jumping high, all those movement patterns, you want to be able to do that quickly and efficiently, efficiently. Um, and also with a lot of force. So interesting. And so you talked a little bit about cueing and yeah. what that and how that impacted the quality of the movement or yes. the or the outcome. Tell us more about that. Yes. Yeah, so a little bit of my research has looked at instructions and cueing. So if you think about strength coaches, sport coaches, uh, movement uh, instructors, uh, we often use words to uh, influence or direct the people that we're working with to move a certain way. Um, and there's lots of different ways that if you've uh, taught a course or if you've been you know, involved in sport that your coaches might have given you cues or instructions to facilitate that movement or help you move in the right way or move in the right direction. And so what we were trying to understand a little bit is how instructions can influence your movement. And so I've looked in the past, uh, looking at the differences between external focus of attention and internal focus of attention instructions. External focus of attention instructions, it's the example could be, I want you to jump as high as you can and aim for that target. I want you to reach as high as you can and sort of hit that basketball net. Um, mm -hmm. An internal focus or an internal cue would be, I want you to extend your hips, extend your knees, extend your ankles while you're jumping. So you're giving them something to think about uh, inherently about your, their body Mm -hmm. What a lot of their research has shown is that often when you give people an external focus, so don't have them think about themselves in this, in this context, but think about the outcome, mm -hmm. they, they sometimes end up jumping higher or they perform better. Mm -hmm. um, with my cohort of athletes that I had jumping, I didn't quite see that. And I think some of the rationale behind that was that these were, these were uh, participants that were familiar with this assessment tool. So they already inherently had the mechanics and the, the knowledge and the wherewithal to jump as high as they could um, because of their training and their athletic experience. Okay. It gave them this cue that they weren't familiar with. It kind of threw them off a little bit for some of them. They were like, oh, I, you know, that really helped or I was overthinking it. And so the big takeaway here is that for some people, the external cue worked. For some people, the internal cue worked. And for others, it was sort of a wash that if, you know, they were kind of, it didn't really matter what information I gave them. So when it comes to moving and it, when it comes to providing information, um, I think one of the big things I sort of came across was that um, it really depends on the individual mm -hmm. and as coaches or practitioners, you really want to have an arsenal of vocabulary and cues and instructions because what works for one person may mm -hmm. not work for somebody else. Yeah. To be mindful of that in your practice. Um, so whether you're doing something like a yoga class, or if you're doing something like a spinning class, you know, what you tell one person might really help them, but it actually might impair somebody else's performance. And that's because we all are so inherently different in how we interpret information, how we process it, and also how we actually physically apply it to our own movement. And also because each individual has such different variation in their own mechanics, their own strength capacity, their mobility, their flexibility, etc. So um, that's something that when we come from a biomechanics perspective, we're looking at how the body is moving and what forces the joints can generate. But to get there, there are lots of different ways that we can 
get there in terms of getting people to move in different capacities and instruction in, instructions and cues can support that. But I think people um, don't necessarily wanna hang their hat on just this one cue or this one instruction because it may not work for all of your practice, all of your, you know, the people that you're working with. Well, absolutely. I mean, even from my own, my own experience being a Pilates instructor is that in a way you have to have, like you said, an arsenal, you have like your, your little bag of tricks and (laughs) absolutely. And, and and not everyone responds the same. And I think that it, a lot of it comes even from cultural background, how you were raised it could even come down to trauma, you know, how much you don't, you don't know what people are coming to you with. So I think that absolutely, it's really important to be able to address it in a variety of different ways. I really do believe that you really should take an individual approach when, yeah. when it comes to movement uh, on one, you know, and when you're conducting an assessment, you're looking at a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. So being, you know, whether it's a, you know, a strength coach or a movement coach, you're, you're getting the snapshot of this person in this moment and what you have provided them or cued them or said to them is reflective of in that moment. But people inherently vary in how they move day to day, week to week, year to year. There's a lot that can happen. And so you can, yeah. you know, we, when we collect data, we collect, you know, five, six, seven trials of something because we know that taking one trial, whether it's a jump or a lift or whatever movement you're looking at, um, it may not capture all of the inherent movement we have as humans. Um, so, yeah. so take that perspective that sure, there are instructions that work for you at this moment in time, but the next time you come in, like you said, you might be thinking about something else. Your mind might be somewhere else. Um, you might be, your body may be tired that morning because of whatever you did the day before. So those are things that practitioners need to be mindful of that all of these things are, it's a fluid state. Our, our bodies are so complex. Um, and so, you know, although uh, we do see in the literature often with some of these movements, external focuses often have, uh, are supportive of performance outcomes, um, but that's not necessarily going to be the case every time and across all of your, you know, your clients or your athletes yeah. or the people that you get to work with. Yeah. So it's a combination, I think, for sure. Well, and I think also, I think people who are, don't have a lot of body awareness, I think an internal cue might be completely tone deaf, you know, like they just be like, well, no, I have no idea how to make that happen inside my body. So an external cue would be far more effective. (laughs) Yeah, no. And it, and it's, you know, we, we talk about things like um, in our sec in our second year introductory biomechanics course, we can, we take the the students through a, a lab looking at spine flexion and um, you know, we're trying to avoid, uh, often we're trying to avoid flexion in the spine when we can avoid it. Um, and so when you're lifting something off the ground, I'm sure you've heard the, the phrase lift with your legs, not with your back. And so what you'll see people do is they will sometimes awkwardly bend their knees, but they're still rounding their spine. Um, they're afraid to stoop really low because well, I'm not, I'm going to bend my back and I'll, you know, but when you actually take a step back and you get people to sort of say, oh, I need to, you know, I need to flex my hips. I need to shoot my, my butt back. Um, I can engage my hamstrings and suddenly they can maintain a better neutral spine when they're lifting mm-hmm. um, sort of uh, using those tendons and ligaments in our spine that aren't meant for repetitive, uh, true, repetitive use. And so we take our, our students through these, you know, these experiments in these labs, and we, we ask them, 
you know, have you guys have you guys ever done a sit and reach test? And we asked them, well, what is a sit and reach test supposed to be evaluating? And I'm sure you might have done this in gym class all those years ago, where you, you were sitting on the ground and you were to reach forward and try to touch your toes. And there's a little um, measuring tape that sees how far you're reaching. And so the students, it's almost like they take a step back after they go through the lab. They're like, well, I'm not really assessing my hamstring flexibility. I might be actually assessing my fly, my spine flexion because you're just rounding your back as much as you can to reach your toes if they don't have the mobility in their hamstrings. So it's, okay, there are assessment tools out there and they are, you know, they can help support and inform um, your decisions and understanding how the body moves, but there's also strengths and limitations to all of these. Exactly. And recognizing that. So it's, you know, we can cue people to uh, flex their hips and maintain, you know, a neutral spine and engage their, their lower, their lower half of their body. Um, but it's using the right information for somebody. You might say, okay, I want you to keep your spine, you know, in a certain way, but that information may not resonate with them. Right. Versus saying, I want you to, you know, stick your butt out. Uh, yeah. I want to, uh, you know, there's just different ways to go about getting people to move and what works for one person may not work for the next. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, before we started this conversation, we had a little chat and we were talking a little bit about how training and injury prevention are actually, you know, they tend to be seen as separate entities, but they are Mm -hmm. in fact almost the same thing. So can you talk a little bit about how the vertical jump assessments um, play into that? Yeah. So when we think about how people are moving and we're thinking about a training program, we're trying to maximize performance. And so we may use the information we get from an assessment tool, such as the vertical jump to help inform our decision-making when it comes to what you know aspects of the training program we're gonna focus on. Are we working on strength, coordination, speed, et cetera. Um, and as, an, as a former athlete myself, and I've seen it time and time again, where there's almost like, well, here's your you know, injury prevention program here's your training program. But like we were talking about, they're kind of one and the same, that if you are inherently using the information that you get from these assessment tools to, you know, you have these benchmark characteristics that you associate with, that you're correlated or associated with athletic performance. If you're working towards those objective measures, then essentially you're also working on preventing injuries because you're looking at um, strengthening the body the coordination, et cetera, in a way that you're tying it all together. So you're maximizing performance. And so when you're using something like the vertical jump um, and you're looking at the variables that we can derive from the ground reaction force. So we're looking at rate of force development or, you know, uh, peak force or how an athlete generates their impulse. If we can track those parameters over time and integrate that into their training program and saying, okay, I want, you know, to work on X, Y, and Z. Now I know that they have gaps in whatever metrics that you're interested in, um, by addressing those gaps, you're not only working on maximizing performance, but you're also, hopefully also, um, minimizing injury risks because you're sort of targeting the body the way that it needs to be targeted, um, Mm -hmm. context of that sport or movement or whatever it is. If we think about, if we're working on training loads and if we're working on uh, performance that you're actually also working on minimizing risk of injury because you're targeting areas that there already got, there are gaps in. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that when practitioners are using assessment tools, that they recognize that this is what the assessment tool can tell you, but also to recognize what 
the assessment tool doesn't tell you. And so not to make a, uh, you know, assumptions about what this information is, um, but to say, this is the information I know and I can use. And then if I need other things, there might be other tools out there to support my decision-making. Um, so it's really understanding a little bit about what your assessment tool can tell you um, and what information it provides and then how it actually can applies to your particular context of, of movement and performance. So interesting. So we talked a little bit about whether or not athletes are coming in and getting these assessment tools regularly. What's really amazing at the University of Toronto and our Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. Um, so I don't know if you can recall from your phys ed days, but it's actually one uh, department. It's the athletic department has the athletic, athletic and co-curricular side. So our mm-hmm. programs, our intramural programs, our recreational programs, but the academic uh, programs are also under the same department. And so what we've seen a lot of in recent years, and we've had the, the opportunity in our, in our lab as well, is to do collaborative research with our varsity athletes. So the information that we are getting from our research projects um, are actually being applied in, and putting into practice in our varsity department. And so our athletes with their strength and conditioning coaches are working very closely with in the past with our biomechanics um, professors. And I've had the opportunity to research looking at different assessment tools with our athletes. Any information I get from my vertical jump studies, because I am working with our athletes in our department, um, that information I'm going to pass on to our strength and conditioning coaches and staff to say, you know, this is what these tools can tell you. And they're actually putting it into practice. It's a very iterative iterative process. Um, Our athletes are doing uh, their, the strength and conditioning program has expanded dramatically over the years. It's it's a very different uh, program than when I was a varsity athlete. Um, and so now there's, you know, the staff in place, there's programs in place um, for the last several years. Um, I've seen the evolution with our own athletes from when I first started coaching. And our athletes are being tested regularly. They're using that data uh, over time to track the athletes but they're also looking for novel ways of understanding movement um, and incorporating, you know, biomechanics uh, analysis into, into these uh, programs. So it's an exciting time for sure in that regard. And it's exciting to know that our practitioners, at least in our department, are mm-hmm. evidence-based decisions when it comes to their training and, and implementation for their programs and implementing for their programs. Oh, that sounds so exciting. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like a really cool time to be there. Yeah. Um, So we also talked about, you know, when you're looking at the assessments and you're seeing an outcome. So for example, you're doing your vertical jump assessment and you see Mm -hmm. that perhaps the athlete as is stagnating or they're not, they're not increasing their jump height or whatever. And you talked about looking into not just the outcome, but the how, like, how are they getting there? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Um, Something that I've come across in the literature for my research is uh, often you see that in the striking conditioning world, the vertical jump assessment is used all the time. It's an easy to implement um, uh, assessment which is fantastic for practitioners. You don't need a lot of equipment. You may just have um, a a jump height measurement device. You might have a contact mat. You might have access to a force plate. But at the end of the day, generally speaking, it's an easy tool to implement. Um, But what ends up happening is sometimes the focus becomes on how high you can jump. And if you're familiar with NFL combines, it's like a, you know, how high can these guys jump? It's a big, it's it's, it's a big, it's a commonly used task. But um, 
the, the issue sometimes is like we said, if an athlete is plateaued in their jump height or they're stagnated, we might think that their jump height, you know, there is telling us their training program isn't working. We have to change something because they're not jumping any higher and they should be based on their, you know, their, how tall they are, or how strong they are. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't making sense. Yeah. What, you know, just the outcome. So the jump, that jump height is what we would consider the outcome measure, that this is how high they're jumping. But what the jump height, you know, that metric doesn't tell us is how they got there. So when we think about movement processes, it's how are you coordinating your joints? How are you generating the force to get up there? Perhaps your jump height has, has stagnated and that just may be a function of, you know, you, you just may not be able to jump any higher given how tall you are, how strong you are. But what might change is the fact that you're actually moving, you're, you're coordinating your joints differently or you're generating force at a much quicker rate, which is something I'm really interested in. So if somebody is able to generate more force under a shorter duration of time, that tells me something different than just looking at their jump height alone. So we talked a little bit about, you know, moving quickly in, in the context of sport. Mm-hmm. That is really, it's a really um, useful metric to be looking at when you consider that maybe they're not jumping any higher, but they're going to get there faster. Um, and so we are able to understand how people move by looking at some of the other metrics. Um, and that tells us something different. And so as biomechanists, because we're looking at how people move or analyzing movement, we're really interested in um, that how as opposed to just the outcome. So yeah. it's really a valuable uh, in terms of understanding their mechanics, because those are also modifiable things that we can look to it, you know, either adjust or promote depending on the training uh, programs or just in terms of cueing. And it's really interesting that even something as simple as an instruction can influence how somebody moves in, in an acute setting. And so mm-hmm. if, if that was all the difference and I just gave you different words and that changed how you move, that's just as important as well as, you know, the fact that your you, what your jump height metric was. So that's just one example in, in terms of vertical jumps, but there's a million examples out there of, you know, by, by provide changing, you know, the context of the setting, whether we're changing uh, in, you know, in a laboratory setting, it can be very, it can be a little bit uh, sterile, for instance, and that's not, it's not what it looks like on the court or on the field or in yeah. that home. Um, so changing the location and how people are, you know, what kind of information they're getting in at that point can change as well. So what we're trying to evaluate isn't just how people move, but what influences their movement. What can we modify in their performance environment that has a, you know, a tangible effect in terms of their actual movement processes. And by breaking that all down, that's information that we can put in the hands of practitioners to say, it's not just, you know, because if someone's doing something and they're performing a certain way, um, but they're doing something that could be inherently risky, potentially, that um, sure, they're, they're going full out and they're getting this movement, but what if they're damaging something else in the long run? Exactly. Or, or on, the, on the flip side, maybe they are plateauing, not because they haven't gotten any stronger or they haven't coordinated, it's just because of how we're asking them to do something is influencing the mechanics. So it's sort of this, it all, it all can get encompassed. Um, mm-hmm. We have to be mindful of that. So as, as you know, biomechanists, we're trying to provide people with the tools and understanding of those tools to evaluate how people move and how you move certainly matters. <laughs> 
Yeah. How do you feel this kind of research is helping you as an assistant coach for the field hockey team? Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, actually, because sometimes I will implement my biomechanics background into coaching and and I think about the instructions I give and I think about how I'm analyzing our athletes movements and, you know, where do I position myself when I go to evaluate and it's a very different it's a different context, uh, context, of course, um, as a as a sport coach, I'm there as you know, to give them feedback on. Uh, their field hockey technique, their tactics, um, you know, where they should be positioned because they're trying to, you know, you know, trying to avoid uh, this defender or as an attacker, they're, you know, need to receive the ball a certain way. And so it's interesting because I don't always in, um, consciously think about those things, but I have, you know, now that I've been doing my PhD for a while now, and it's interesting to see how this is all very much integrated and it's not just biomechanics, but physiology and motor control and and of course all the psychological aspects of sport um, and so being able to be a part of a program like the field hockey team at UT as, a, as, a, as an assistant coach has been amazing um, and it's really been interesting to be able to take a little bit of what I do um, in my research world and you know bring it to field hockey but as a sport coach it's a it's, I, I put on different hats and so mm-hmm. The sport coach, it's a little bit different approach, yeah. but it's certainly something I can bring as as part of my toolkit to the table um, and working with our head coaches and and, and our and the other staff to integrate. Um, but it's certainly something that over the years I've been mindful of when I'm delivering a cure instruction. Am I doing it because that's what worked for me? Mm-hmm. Or is this actually going to help our athletes, you know, position themselves differently to work on a particular technique or skill? Um, right. And so sometimes you start with what you know, and that's where you, you start with. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then you start thinking about other things. And I've certainly been in that position where I'm like, oh, they're just not getting it. <laughs> what do I have to get them to get them into the, the, the right position or to think about, you know, their, the outcome or to think about their, their movement and to, and to actually consciously give them cues um, yeah. about their, about their, about their coordination and their joints, or do I give them sort of the outcome measure or the, or the cue about the, where you want to hit the ball to and don't mm-hmm. how your body's moving or not to think mm-hmm. your body's moving. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely a different context and it's been fun. Um, and it, it certainly is uh, something that I'm super passionate about. So it's, yeah. It's, sometimes be able to bring those things together. Yeah, I bet. I think it would be really, really exciting to be able to do that. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the misinformation that's, you know, that is out there in the world of social media platforms and what you have to say about that. <laughs> well, um, I'll, this I'll put my biomechanics hat back on. Yeah, yeah. That, um you know, like, it's interesting, because I think about when Facebook came out, and Instagram, and all these platforms, and it hasn't been that long that these, these platforms are out there, which means it's, but how knowledge is disseminated is taken yeah. on a whole new platform, it's a whole new yeah. way of sharing knowledge, which yeah. for the most part, it's an amazing resource, and that uh, it gives a lot of people access to information, and, um, and, and resources that they may not have had in the past. But with that comes, the, the, the bad comes with the good, of course. And 
Um, what we sometimes see in, in our field is that the information that's getting pushed up there, it's not necessarily steeped in theoretical principles or foundations. It's, it's glorified or it's, um, there's misinformation out there. Or you have people who come across as, as experts in the field, but if you look into their credentials, it's really, they don't necessarily have the background in exercise science or biomechanics or physiology, wherever it may be, mm -hmm. make the claims that they're making. Um, and that, you know, flashy, flashy profiles and yeah. influencers have a lot more, um, have a lot more ability, have, have this ability to, to gain that attention and attract uh, individuals to, you know, follow them, so to speak. Um, but it, it takes a critical eye to be able to discern, you know, what information is out there is evidence-based and what is out there that is just sort of whatever, what so-and-so is spewing. Mm -hmm. um, really hard if you don't have a background in whatever area that may be. So from, from our context, and we take, you know, try to apply these biomechanical principles and, and theoretical principles and understanding how the body moves um, to a sport, uh, to sorry, to sport or to strength and conditioning. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for those who aren't familiar with that to know what they're seeing is potentially harmful for them or that one size does not fit all. Um, right. um, you know, we, we are in university and we're researchers and we're really trying to aspire to be critical thinkers. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the big thing that regardless of what field you're in when you're um, a, in doing research is that you want to be able to look at these um, problems of the different contexts and say, what, what am I seeing here? Um, yeah. What can I get from this information? Are there gaps in what I'm seeing? How can I address those gaps? And that's what, you know, for us, that's yeah. what research is. And so yeah. we take a critical eye to everything that we're seeing or reading yeah. or watching, because that's inherently what science is, is that you that's want right. to be able to look at the information presented to you and engage mm -hmm. um, what this all means. And so, of course, we're biased in that that's sort of our approach to how we do things is because that's inherently what part the research process is. Um, so I think it, it's hard because if you don't know what, what to look for, um, then you don't know what you're missing or what information yeah. might be false or inaccurate or maybe doesn't apply to you. Yeah. And so I think for those out there who are listening and who are using these amazing resources that are available online is to be mindful of what's being said and just to take that step back and be take a put a critical critical lens on and say, okay, what, what is this information and, and how can I apply it to me, um, but also to know that not everything out there is, is the gold standard and, and right. it's hard to discern that. Yeah one person to the next, but just to be mindful of that is, is really important. That's the first step and yeah. seek out the resources and, and find people that have the training in the background that can support you um, in whatever your, your goals are when it comes to movement, but it is hard. I, and I know I follow different, um, different people on, on social media and I try to be mindful of what they're putting out there. But of course I'm coming from my background where I have that knowledge in my toolkit to say, okay, what they're, what they're doing is great. It's positive and it's um, using the right principles to, to share their knowledge. But at the same time, that's something that isn't necessarily, I, I, I can always pick up on that myself. So uh -huh. that's, it's, you have to learn as you go, but it's yeah. something to be mindful of for sure, especially yeah. when it comes to social media and what's out there and yeah. how 
it is to access that information. Yeah. Do you have any like examples of things that really irk you when you see (laughs) (laughs) you're like, that is just like, beware of messaging like this. Well, it's, um, I think with a lot of stuff in the fitness world, um, it's sort of this, uh, no pain or sorry, all pain, no gain type of thing. Like you have to, you know, yeah, it's going to hurt and, and you have to, you know, push the body to the max, or, um, you'll see people who promote, you know, doing like a hundred sit-ups and you're going, well, that can be really damaging for your spine. Please don't do that. Um, and so I, it's so tough because, um, there's no one size fits all for when it comes to movement and, and, and wellness. And I think, um, for a lot of people out there, you really do need to, it, it takes time, but you really need to listen to your body um, and be mindful of what you're doing um, and how somebody is doing something online uh, as, as even if it's coming from a good place, it might not apply to you. So you have, it, it's so hard for a lot of people to sort of discern that, but certainly when um, people are doing sort of things to the extreme or they're not mindful of, you know, their spine flexion or their knees are caving in when they're doing this max effort back squat. And you're going, well, yeah. I'm really glad that you did that, except like you could just blow your knee out. And yeah. I've had ACL um, surgery and it's not fun. So, no. you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you see people applauding these efforts without really understanding the mechanics and yeah. potential injuries could arise from these extreme movements or from doing things you know, we may not, you may not get injured in that one instance by, by doing these repetitive movements over and over and over again can lead to chronic injuries or, or lead to failure of something. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's when you see that and you just see how pervasive it is Yeah. It's a little bit like cringy. It's a cringeworthy moment yeah. there because <laughs> there are a lot of people out there that hype each other up and you're going, you're thinking, all I see is, you know, someone's flexing their spine or someone's knees caving in and I can't see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, a lot of this stuff is anecdotal. Say a person's working with another person and they've working on this concept and the person is doing well, like, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're improving to a certain degree in certain aspects of their movement. And then they just start sharing that. Well, they don't necessarily understand the background. They don't understand where that person came from and what their history is, which can be problematic. I think the other thing that comes up too, is I think people kind of get bored with what they're doing. And so yes. then they see other people and they, they just see like shiny objects, right? They think, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, look at that new thing. I haven't tried that yet. Let's do that yeah. without really understanding. Well, why are we doing that? What's yes. the purpose? How is this going to strengthen you? You know, yeah. maybe you don't need to continue strengthening your quad. Maybe you need to more be strengthening your glute. You're right that it's really important to know your body, know the people's bodies that you're working with and, yeah. you know, move from there. So anyways, excellent point. If you haven't checked out the Pilates Movement and Wellness Online Studio and all of the goodies inside of it, make sure to check out the link in the show notes below. Let's talk about the award that you received. (laughs) This is why I reached out to you in the first place, because when I saw your two worlds colliding, I was really excited for you. Sir, we got this grant recently from the Sport Information Research Center, and this is 
an opportunity for researchers to be matched with agencies or groups that are, are looking for answers for their questions. Um, and so this research opportunity is actually in collaboration with Field Hockey Canada and Field Hockey Ontario. And so I reached out to colleagues that uh, are working in those respective institutions. So my colleague Kate Perry is a strength and conditioning coach for Field Hockey Canada's Next Gen program. So the Next Gen program is uh, the development pathway for athletes that have been identified um, through the provincial or regional programs who are on the pathway to the national team. And so they've been identified as athletes who have the potential to be, and so they're working on that sort of pathway. Yeah. And I'm also working with Justine Brinko, who is the athletic therapist for Field Hockey Ontario. And all three of us played field hockey growing up. Uh, Justine was an athlete at U of T, and I actually coached her. And uh, Kate Perry um, played field hockey in the States. I think she went to Kent, to Kent State, if I'm not mistaken, and she's from out West. And so when I saw this research opportunity come up, I reached out to them to say, are you guys interested in collaborating on this? Um, and you know, right away, they were both super excited about it. And what we sort of recognize is that there are gaps in how, what information we know about our athletes and what information we can apply to the strength and conditioning programs. Mm-hmm. One of the, the main focus of this opportunity this year through CERC was uh, promoting women's and girls' health uh, in whatever context that may be. So the projects are super varied. And so we're actually, I think, one of the few quantitative research projects. A lot of the other projects are qualitative research. Um, And so what we're doing is that, you know, the the Next Gen program is looking, has different age cohorts on this development pathway. And what we're trying to understand is what are those benchmark characteristics that athletes require in order to have success in terms of performance as they progress through these cohorts and are aspiring to be on the senior national team. And so what I proposed was why don't we use the vertical jump? This is an assessment tool that um, can help us understand um, athletic characteristics or qualities in in an athlete. And we can use this tool in an objective way to um, evaluate their performance and look at their movement mechanics and say, are there any differences between these age cohorts? So is this something that with our younger female athletes, we don't see these qualities or characteristics, or, you know, there is this sort of this uh, progression between, between the age cohorts where as they get stronger, they have more experience, um, they have more exposure to strength and conditioning programs. Do we see this, you know, improvement along these different parameters? And what, another thing that, you know, part of this research we wanted to address is that, um, Often in sports sciences and research, what you have is that the, the research is often done on male participants, and that information is applied to the female counterparts. Yeah. <laughs> research, you see this in sports sciences, um, you know, and it's, it's pervasive and it's unfortunate. So the focus is to focus on our female athletes and to give information to our practitioners like Kate and Justine to say, these are the parameters that we should be looking at. These are the parameters that we should be uh, incorporating into our training programs and to, 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 to track our athletes and to say, you know, if we have athletes in the senior program and these are what their metrics look like, then we may be able to start developing the training program to build, 
to build on those that information and build on those <clears throat> different metrics. And so we're trying to develop a training program that's specific to our athletes, that's evidence-based, that's specific to our female athletes as well. Right. Um, and, and to, you know, we, we just haven't had these kind of opportunities to do this kind of research, um, within field hockey. It's an underserviced sport. It's not necessarily a super popular sport in North yeah. America. So <laughs> to be able to, um, to take this opportunity and conduct the research that I'm passionate about in terms of, you know, what I'm doing for my, for my, for my PhD and actually to apply it to the sport that's given me so much, um, is really exciting. And I get to work with two, amazing female practitioners, which is, you know, who also come from the field hockey community and we all have um, health backgrounds and have all sort of come to this uh, conjunction where we're saying, you know, this is really exciting. We're really excited to do this. So, so yeah, we're taking, you know, we're using the vertical jump to assess these athletes performance, both, you know, their jump heights so or their outcomes, outcome measure, but also all the parameters like that I, I spoke to about earlier, about understanding their movement processes yeah. and using that to help um, identify if there are differences between these different age cohorts. And then if we do see some differences um, or not, at least we know which variables to start targeting or help to inform the decision-making. And so, yeah, we get to take this biomechanical approach and do quantitative research, which I'm really excited about, but then work with uh, with field hockey athletes. And I'm really excited to get started. Of course, we're navigating everything when it comes to this pandemic and uh, COVID has put a halt on a lot of research at several uh, universities across the country because uh, right now we're not able to do research on human participants. Um, so we're mindful of that and that I'm modifying my uh, experimental design to hopefully get a portable force plate and take the athletes outside come the spring or early summer to conduct, to finalize the research and conduct it outside. And so to mitigate the risk associated with, uh, with that, but um, yeah, really excited about this opportunity just because it's sort of bridging uh, two really big parts of my life together. Yeah. I hope that we actually be able to give some tangible information to our practitioners at Field Hockey Canada and Field Hockey Ontario. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like you have this amazing opportunity to create a big shift in this, in the sport, you know, yeah. and I just feel like this is a really exciting time for you, for all of you. I think it's yeah, so, we're really so, excited. So we're really yeah. excited about this opportunity um, and, and to just, you know, especially since it's, it's not just about the outcomes of this research, it's also about the entire process of collaborating with these institutions, creating that um, knowledge translation opportunity and integrating, you know, the practitioners along the way uh, is really important. And it's something that I uh, have really thought about a lot in my research. Um, it's, it's, it's working on, um, you know, when we think about implementation science, it's not just about, you know, what does the data say, but how do we get there? How do we integrate? You know, it has to be meaningful for our stakeholders. And yeah. in case we're working with sport, in, sport institutions that are, um, you know, there's not a, a huge amount of funding um, coming through. And a lot of our athletes have to make a lot of sacrifices to get where they want to be and same with the coaches and the stuff. I know we talk about field hockey and it's, it's very much like, it's almost like we're all volunteers at some level because, yeah. you know, for it to sustain, people have to devote a lot of their own time and energy to keep the sport, you know, moving along in Canada. Um, so to be able to take 
this opportunity to not only get some answers, but also to, to put into place the right practices to have continued research and to have continued um, uh, opportunities to say like, this is what, it, what we need to be able to do on a regular basis to be yeah. able to support our athletes to you know, promote performance. It's a team sport. So it's, it's, it's a lot different. You don't see the outcomes the same way you do with an individual athlete sport where you're focusing on this one athlete and you can just get them to be at their top. You know, we have to develop practices that can be implemented across an entire cohort, entire program. Um, you know, field hockey Canada, uh, the athletes are mostly centralized in Vancouver, but we have athletes spread across the country. So can you create tools and resources that coaches and practitioners can implement wherever they are? Um, yeah. And then, you know, and, and have everybody on the same page and to be able to disseminate that knowledge is um, uh, also a really big part of what I aspire to do in my research is to also make sure that the information that I'm, um, I'm getting from my research is being handed over to those that are actually using this information, but done in a way that's meaningful, yeah. um, done in a way that they can actually uh, put it, put into practice. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that we are hoping to aspire to in this research as well, is to make sure that this isn't just a one and done, that this is something that yeah. can give them the tools and resources to understand the vertical jump and that they can use this information long-term, mm-hmm. implement these kinds of assessments um, and then hopefully down the road, it means that this will sort of become more pervasive with all sorts of elements when it comes to strength and conditioning, training programs, how we assess our athletes and monitor them. Um, and it just becomes part of the entire integrated support for the, yeah. for all of the athletes across the country. Oh, sounds so amazing. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm hearing you and I feel like I, I want uh, the next little while of my podcast to be focusing in on communication, you know, delivering information, you know, cause there's yes. the science and there's the practice, but then there's like, how, how do you get the mo- the information moving from one place to another and making yeah. sure that people are, are collaborating number one, and that, you know, yeah. effect- effectively like explaining things so that people understand so that they can then effectively use the tools that you're giving them, which is so exciting. It's, yeah. It's, um, there are people out there that that is their job. They're knowledge. Yeah. They're the ones that are able to take this information, yeah. turn it around. And, and you see it time and time again, where, you know, someone comes in and conducts a workshop in an office setting. What we're inherently doing when we think about movement and we think about, uh, and you think about, you know, exercise and people know that they should exercise. People know that they should be moving their bodies on a regular basis. But what we're effectively having to do is not educate people around ed- about exercise, but we're actually having to create change in behavior. Yeah. It's fundamentally super hard when it comes to humans and our yeah. psychology around all of this. So um, as biomechanists, we come at it from a, you know, a, a movement lens. Uh, uh, we're looking yeah. at structure and function, like I talked about before. Yeah. Um, so we ha- we, we're using those principles to inform our decision-making, but we have to integrate how are we going to change behavior? What motivates somebody? Right. What, you know, um, I have some of the co- my colleagues have done research and, and my supervisors are looking at things like 
well, if somebody's, uh, you know, in a grandparent, for instance, maybe their motivation is that they want to be able to move with their grandchildren and play yeah. with them and have, you know, quality of life measures. And that may be what captures them in order to be able to move more regularly, to incorporate different movement patterns, to be creative with that. So, um, you know, as a practitioner, you have to be mindful of where the person is coming from and yeah. what, what is their background, what is their, what are their motivations, um, and then use these principles that we've discussed today to inform your practice. But so much of it is about understanding the person holistically, for sure. Um, and, you know, from if, if you're working with an athlete, it, working with athletes is the same as working with, you know, somebody who's out there just to stay active because they want a good quality of life. If the athlete's coming to you with a ton of baggage and they're having a bad day or a bad semester or, you know, they're in the middle of a pandemic, like these yeah. are things you have to consider. Um, and so those are things that we also are really um, cognizant of as researchers, or at least we are in our lab about understanding the motivation and all the constraints that people have in their life. Yeah. Um, because as much as we have the information to help support people to move more safely or to enhance performance, none of that matters if we don't um, connect with them on some level. Um, mm -hmm. as, you know, strength coaches or movement practitioners, you have to know that that's a big part of your yeah. that should be a big part of your practice as well yeah do you have a because you were talking about how you have do a lot of quality not sorry quantitative research yeah. do you incorporate some qualitative in in, oh, in absolutely. It so it's like a whole picture yeah absolutely so there's yeah. um you know, there's a lot of collaborative research just in general, I think in our department, there's some, there's opportunities where, you know, different uh, uh, researchers will sort of play off of each other's strengths, but just even from a biomechanics perspective, um, you can look at people, how they move from a quali qualitative perspective as well. There's a right. quality of movement that right. I, there's not necessarily a, you know, an objective measure that I can say, well, this person is moving at this degrees of, you know, flexion. It's yeah. Like, oh, that looked fluid or that looked easy. Um, that looked effortless. Those are qualitative ways of analysis as well. Um, yeah. I remember, I recall doing a research um, on our varsity athletes where we had them, we took them through um, a, a movement screen and, you know, there was, the athletes were scored based on their outcomes, but something that, you know, there are obviously uh, weaknesses to different movement assessments, but something that I remember watching some of the athletes and thinking what this, what the screen didn't capture was this inherent quality of movement that right. I could watch somebody and the number told me one thing, but the ease of movement or the fluidity of their movement also was something that you're saying, okay, if someone can, get the same score, but that person made it look a lot easier than the other person. <laughs> um, yeah. Something that I think as a practitioner, you would, you, you know, you're observing with your eyes and that tells you something as well. And as a sport yeah. coach, I watch the same thing. And when you watch an athlete compete and they make it look effortless, it's just something about that. You're saying, I can't put a number on that. Yeah. The fact that they do it with such, you know, fluidity or whether it's an aesthetic sport or not, yeah. Um, something about that quality of the movement where um, it that tells you something about their performance. Yeah. 
if if someone looks like it's really challenging, that also tells you something. Yeah, exactly. As well. I mean, I'm wondering also from their perspective, right? Like if they were be able to rate their own, like their own level of ease yeah. of doing a particular move or doing whatever it is, like that would yeah. be interesting information to get also. Yeah, I mean, we often ask people in terms of their rate of perceived exertion. So, yeah. you know, like how how tired yeah. do you feel, how hard do you feel you're working? Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I speak to my athletes, when they're, you know, hitting a ball or they're doing a movement and they're like, oh, I, I could feel that. I like that felt different. And mm-hmm. they can't necessarily put uh, a number on it or they can't yeah. even describe exactly, but they can now yeah. have this inherent quality about the movement that they can reflect back onto and use that as information, which is also incredibly important when we talk about movement and and, um, coaching and cueing is that sometimes it's about how you feel and that you can refer back to that as information that is as feedback. It's all feedback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I use that constantly when I'm doing Pilates and when I take people off to the side and I like give them specific information and I'm like did you feel that that was different yes I felt it was different okay so that's what we want to do we want to focus on that that feeling that you've got going on like let's work towards that you know yeah and so and it's always really fun when they have that kind of light bulb moment you know where they can feel something is is different. They're engaging things that they need to be engaging. So it's cool. Yeah, It's very so much, much a learn. It's part of the learning. Yeah. Um, and if someone can, you know, we talk about what learning means, but if someone can take that and tr- transfer that information to a different context or a different skill, um, that's one way we can assess that they've learned that movement. Yeah. Okay. It, it's something that they're developing. And so if you're coming from sort of a, a motor control uh, context or, 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 or uh, way of looking at it is that if you are for when it comes to a mo- a acquiring movement uh, and we're looking at movement skills um, if you're able to you know not only can you do this movement under these conditions but now we we take that from outside the lab and you're doing it on the field or mm-hmm. we different uh, parameters at you um, having you to think about other things but if you're still able to produce that same movement skill in all these different contexts and we have an idea of saying okay this person is is learning and that they're able to sort of be able to be able to continually produce those movement efforts uh, in contra and different uh, context is actually something a way to evaluate if somebody is is actually learning because yeah can only observe their movements but we change those parameters and see if they're changing how they're moving so good so I ask everyone at the end of the episode, um, what move better, feel better means to them specifically. Oh. And so, and the reason why is because I started a campaign called move better, feel better. And the reason why is because I wanted uh, to sell tank tops and the profits to this uh, from the tank tops goes to women's mental health. Oh, that's and, amazing. And so I wanted to know in your perspective, even just from your own personal experience, what does mm-hmm. better feel better mean to you? Oh, uh, it means a lot of different things. And I think it's shifted a little bit um, over the years. Um, for me before, it probably came from more of an athletic context that I was able to perform with ease and mm-hmm. um, felt good out there. And I, you know, you know, felt faster and whatnot. I felt strong. Um, and now it's, it's about, um, 
being able to do things with my daughter and to be able to be a good role model for her. And so um, when I am active and when I get outside and I'm in nature, or if I'm still playing recreational field hockey, um, I just feel like I just feel healthy and I feel happy. Um, sport and activity brings me a lot of joy. It's a big part of who I am. Um, and, and, and having those opportunities for me is also connected with friends and family and people who are also passionate about those things. Um, so for me, when I, when I'm active and I'm moving, I just, um, I feel good. <laughs> I yeah. feel, I feel happy. Um, and it just feels like, uh, things are the way they're supposed to be. And, uh, now as a, as a mom and we have an active five-year-old, it's, um, a lot of it is about, uh, demonstrating those behaviors for an active, healthy lifestyle, and I love that I can pick her up and toss her around and I can throw over my shoulder and, yeah. you know, it's, I think it's, it's important for her to see that her mom is strong and healthy. Yeah. I um, prioritize my health and wellness because I want the same for her. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think it means a lot of things, but right now it's just being mindful of what I need to to be happy and healthy and uh, to, and I can continue to do so for, for many, many years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. So if people want to find you, where do yeah. they find you? Melinda? Um, well, um, I'm, I, I guess if you are on Twitter, you can find me there. I'm not super, super active, but I try to be. Um, I'm at U of T in the biomechanics lab at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. Um, and so they, you can reach out to me there if you have uh, research interests or, op or ways you want to collaborate questions. Um, and uh, yeah, I, for me, um, the best way to reach me is probably email. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening in to Matters of Movement, the podcast. I am your host, Christina Whalen Chabot, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Matters of Movement. And if you want to buy a tank top or just check out my website, you can do that at mattersofmovement.ca. In order for our podcast to reach a bigger audience, you can show your support and love by subscribing to reviewing and rating this podcast. See you next time, where we will continue to explore all matters related to movement together.